if you will, find uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. As we work our way through 2 Peter, that is our next stop. Is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. In verse 3, Peter writes, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to preach your word. And I pray, Father God, that I will do it, Father God, at this moment, Lord, in a way that is, uh, in the way, God, that's faithful to what you've, you have shared uh, with me, Father God, through your word. And that, that Father God, does the, the job, the mission, Father God, faithfully that you've sent me to do today. I pray, Father God, that I preach in a way, Lord, that, that does, not, uh, does not hide the truth, Father God, or, or try to compromise it, Father, but that it is a clear declaration of gospel truth right now, Father. Nothing is more important to us than truth now, Father God. And I pray, Lord, even though we're in a truth, God, we're in a culture in which truth has been compromised for generations, Father, in which we've never embraced the real truth, Father God. It's never shaped us, Father God. I pray for that, Father. I pray, God, now for a great national revival, Father God, that will take over, that will make of us, Father God, a truly Christian nation, Father. God, how we, can, how we can tolerate the things we tolerate, Father God, is beyond me. But, Father God, I know, Lord, that, that now as the veil is being removed, as we see, Father God, our nation for what it is, Father God, I pray, Father God, right now at this moment, that your people will rise up, Father God. That's what I pray for, more than anything else. That your people, Father God, will rise up, will seek your truth, Father God, that we'll dare to live and believe, Father God, that which we proclaim, Father that we'll dare, Father God, to allow our lives and our hearts to be shaped by the gospel more than any generation that has preceded us, Father God. I pray, God, for a purifying of the American church, Father God. In the very same way, God, that those very first faithful believers landed on the shore, Father God, uh, were, were, were seeking, Father God, to, to, to purify the, the, their church, Lord. I pray, God, that today their vision and their dream can be realized, Father God, among the current generations that inhabit this land, Father God. I pray, God, that you make out of us, Father God, a Christian nation, the likes of which has never been seen, Father God. I pray for that now, Lord. I thank you, God, for your truth. And I pray, Father God, that your truth reigns over your church always, Lord. We love you and we thank you, Lord, for the gift of Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray for it. Amen. Amen. Folks, nothing is more precious for the church, no more essential for the health and the flourishing of this body of Christ than the only truth, the words of the Bible. The, there is nothing else that matters. There's nothing else worth fighting about. There's nothing else worth arguing about. All we can do today is come together and do everything we can to, to drink in as much gospel truth as possible. It, it's not important how we feel. It's not important what I think. It's not about, important whether I'm comfortable with something or not. What matters today is what's always mattered. And that is, has God spoken and am I faithful? Because if God has spoken, it is now up to me to be faithful to what God says. In no other way can there be any wavering or contradiction in truth that does more to define the church than merely the families that compose it. I love our families. But for folks, for way too long, we've started to think of church in terms of who goes there. Of the people that make up, that, that fill the pews. It's not that you're not important to me and that I 
prayerfully am important to you. But the reality is the only thing that's really important is what we believe collectively. We are a group of people, a body of people defined by what we believe. That's the church. It's not a legacy. You can't inherit it. It's not who my grandfather was or your grandfather was. Those things are important to us and they're not trivial matters. But in the end, the church is defined by what we believe. So we're going to talk about those things that we believe. More specifically, we're not going to, more specifically, we're not going to talk about the intricacies of it. We're going to talk about the value of it today. We're going to talk about whether or not we're really going to passionately defend those things that we, do, that we believe. Because when we say we care about them, but if we keep them to ourselves, we're really lying to ourselves. We say we care about them, but if they don't shape who we are as people, then we're really lying to ourselves. Look, John, um, John F. Wolford, who was the, the president of Dallas Seminary for a really long time, said this. He said, the Bible is God's declaratory revelation to man containing the great truths about God, about man, about his history, about salvation, and about prophecy that God wanted us to know. The Bible could be trusted just as much as if God had taken the pen and written the words himself. We have delivered to us a Bible that's absolutely trustworthy. We understand it is inerrant in the original, the way every statement of biblical inerrancy uh, is, is constructed. They are, uh, the Bible is inerrant in its original autographs. That's what they say every time. What that means, simply put, is that the Bible in the, the, the book of Isaiah written by Isaiah is, is inerrant. We understand that. We, however, can trust the inerrancy of the Bible that stands before us because we can examine the uh, method by which it was translated. We can, we can examine the lives of men who are part of the committees that did this. We can look to, to vast amounts of evidence that, that have gone together through thousands of manuscripts to produce what we have. We can trust the Bible. Trust the Bible. And if there's ever a slight, slight little glitch, Brother Kyle, that we find somewhere, we can still look to how that verse was translated and have peace about it. And have peace about it. The fact of the matter is we can trust the Bible as if God literally took the pen in his hand and wrote these things down. Look, an issue for the church is that our greatest strength and enduring, ongoing dependency upon the Bible's words. Because that's, deep down folks, that's who we've got to be. A people who are dependent upon the words of the Bible. As much as I love worship, worship pales in comparison to being able to sit down with the word of God. With the word of God. With the Bible upon my lap. As much as I can depend on my friends and my family for support. The greatest support I'll ever receive is, is the word of God. The only answer to times of trouble is the word of God. That's why we do it at funerals. We don't just talk about how grand the person was who passed away. Even if we dearly loved them and dearly respected them. What do we do to honor their commitment to Christ? We preach the healing words of the gospel over them. It was the song of their heart. It was the theme of their life. And now we will celebrate the, uh, the, the end of an earthly life and the beginning of a heavenly life by doing what? By declaring the gospel. That's what we do. We acknowledge it in every aspect of our lives. That is our greatest strength. It's also our greatest weakness as people. The attack that comes, that always comes, is a perversion of the truth 
that is palatable. A perversion of the truth that we can take. Do you understand what I mean? It's not to go out and just simply deny the deity of Christ. It's to chip away at these essential truths time and time again culturally. When the outside culture that wants to compromise every truth starts to leak its way inside. Try to find its way in through the, the cracks and the crevices of the edifice of the church. And we start to that slow, biblical, theological, cultural, societal slide of the church into denying essential aspects of the gospel. The creep always happens over time. It always happens over time. It always requires revival, quickening, purification to stem that tide every time. It always requires that. That's the corruption. Just a doubt. As with the corruption of Genesis 3.1. Moses records as, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did, you, did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Understand what just happened. Satan... In the guise of a serpent, sowed the seeds of mistrust in the heart of Adam and Eve by casting doubts on the clear words of God. I don't even need to use explanation because you know exactly what I'm talking about here. The problem we run into is not that it's some, not that it's 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 not in some some symbolic passage. It's not in a passage of scripture that could have possibly multiple applications. It's when God's word speaks definitively that Satan wants to step in and cause you to doubt whether or not God's word speaks definitively. When God's word, talk, when God's word talks about, about things like commitment to the gospel, then he speaks resoundingly. When he talks about church attendance, he speaks resoundingly. When he talks about sexual ethics, he speaks resoundingly. When he talks about loving your neighbor, he speaks resoundingly. Clear as a bell. And what we want to do is imagine that somehow those words are more slippery. That somehow God's a, a salesman and not a declarer of truth. And we want to do that. Why? Because we want to do the opposite. We want to go where we want to go and do what we want to go, do and behave the way we want to behave. And we want to reimagine God's word such that it allows us to do what we want. As if God isn't speaking as God. But the reality is this, is that Satan took the clear words of God. Is it really what he said? And human beings that wanted to do differently then took over, didn't they? They didn't want to do what God said. They wanted to do what they wanted to say. They wanted to be God. And their natural inclination took over. Our Lord had directly said to Adam in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What did God said? Eat of every other tree but that one right there. He had not stuttered. There was nothing about this conversation that had any, any gray areas. It was a clear mandate from the living God. You will not do this. The ears of humanity had received the doubt they needed. And when they received the doubt they needed, they did just what they wanted to do. Folks, it is the seed of every sin I've ever committed in my life. It's the seed of every sin you've ever committed in your life. 
God doesn't really mean what he's saying. I know no authority figure, no human authority figure that does not, that's successful, that doesn't mean exactly what they say, whose word cannot be taken as, as a bond, as truth. And we would reimagine the Lord of the universe somehow speaks in ways in which we should not, we should not heed. The Lord's words are not unclear or symbolic, but a terrifying warning of what life under the bondage and stain of sin would, would contain. Satan was able to first deceive Eve, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, and then Eve influenced Adam, and the entire family of humanity was led into rebellion, sedition, and idolatry. That one, that one Sin, that one moment in which two people indulged their, their need to rebel doomed us all. In that moment, we did surely die. We would taste the death of sin for the rest of our lives for all humanity. And for that reason, every single person who inhabits this earth would taste death. Adam heard these words directly from the Lord himself. But Eve, before Eve was even created, Adam knew this. As with all men in federal headship over their families in the covenantal sense of the gospel that defines our lives, we are to be the protectors of the truth. Understand, this story is a man issue. First and foremost, this issue is one that we speak to directly right now at this very moment. Men, we have to rise up first and foremost and be those who are whose lives are defined by the truth and are willing to die to protect the truth. We can't expect women to carry the water of truth. It is required of us by God. It is who we are. It is why we were created. To lead in terms of truth first. A lot of men in this world have confused leadership with getting your way. Spoiled kids get their way. Spoiled kids throw tantrums and everybody changes what they're doing to suit them. Men lead in truth. First and foremost, men lead in truth. It's called federal headship. It was given first Adam and now we see in marriage the embodiment of it. That we're to lead our families in truth. We're the protectors of the truth. Our inheritance is the command of Paul in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When the word of God dwells in husband and wife, in father and in mother, when men of God set the direction of the family in terms of truth, then word, the word dwells in us by wise teaching. And rebuking by energetic lives of worship and hearts that are thankful to God. The word of God taught in our homes produces this. When it dwells richly in us, we're going to teach it. We're going to sing and worship. We're going to be thankful. We're going to be thankful. The evidence of what we do in our families is seen in the work product of godly children. As Solomon teaches in Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Man, you know what the hard part about that statement is? 
the even when he's old part. Because sometimes you've got to wait a long time to see it, don't you? Sometimes you teach it and teach it and impart it and impart it and do everything that you possibly can. And what happens? And what happens? They go astray for a moment. But his promise is even when they're old, we'll be able to enjoy them, brothers and sisters, when they are old because we have devoted our lives to teaching the right way. Look, it's impossible to dwell in the Word of God and to train our children in its vital, invigorating, and reforming power if we're not clear about the veracity of Christ's teachings. If we aren't absolutely clear about what truth is, how in the world can we teach truth? If we aren't absolutely dedicated to what truth is, to the way that God has given, if we don't live it in our lives first, first. Look, I've said this to you guys before, and I think this is the, maybe the most true statement I've got to make. And as I edge older year after year, I'm more and more convinced you know what kind of legacy I want to leave? I want to leave a legacy that when I am dead, my children can say, my father was a man of God. Who cares? There are people out there struggling, struggling to leave the monetary blessings that are worthless, that they'll spend in an instant, that are worth nothing in comparison to they were when they were put into that account or saved away or squirreled away the way, that, the way they were. But they'll leave nothing in terms of a legacy of truth. To be a father, to be a husband, and to be successful in the eyes of God means to be a man of God. A man committed to his principles. That's the Apostle Paul's expressed fear. Look in 2 Corinthians 11.3 when he writes, Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That somehow we get led astray. Convenient doubts. Doubts and well-placed half-truths full to even at them. It denied his role as head and defender of the truth, and they both wandered into error. It can happen to us. It can happen to us. If we are not careful and sober and vigilant, it can and will happen to us. As the church, the inheritors of sin and its antidote, the gospel, we must seek that sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. The saving God, man, and Lord of our lives. And that comes through clarity in teaching and preaching the word of God. Each of us, every day, teaching and preaching the word of God. Each of us, every day, insisting on it. Each of us, every day, living it out. Every day. Back to our focal passage. Peter explains in 2 Peter 2, 3, he says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Look, 1 Peter's straightforward about the motivation for false teachers and preachers. We see it around us. It is a byproduct and an opportunity for a greedy nature to manifest itself in the, in the church. False teachers and false prophets do so for the main reason that humans do everything. For money. For money. They have found a path that will feather their nests. And they do so, why? Because it pays well. And they will follow this path. And every church that I can think of on planet Earth that claims Christ as Savior but has lost their way has done so because they pursued, they pursued green and not red, if you know what I mean. They pursued money and not the blood of Christ. The natural greediness of humanity manifests itself there. These men and women want the power and money. The twisted prestige of perceived power from the Lord. 
I know. I'm certainly not the expert in our congregation. This brother Kyle and brother Brian have done more research and watched more and studied more and read more about this. But it always shocks me at the lack of humility and the wielding carelessly of a kind of power that comes from this cult of personality that comes to these false teachers and these false prophets. They are driven by greed and they are the man. And they love being the man. They love it. They control and they build empires, small and large. They're used for one purpose, the material enriching of their lives. They are growing wealthy from the gospel. Now Paul describes the situation when he writes in Philippians 3, 18 through 20. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, I can think of no better way to say it than directly. These greedy liars are the enemies of Christ. They've turned their backs on the true God and Savior and embraced their, their most primitive and vulgar natures. Now, I'll explain to you the, the decline of it. And I think maybe I am better suited than almost anyone you're going to meet to explain the situation. It is so, it would be so easy so easy to stand in this pulpit after having talked to a lot of people and sampled the crowd and figured out, brothers, what would be the most popular thing to say. It would be so easy to do that. You know why? Because somebody's always wanting to tell you what you should do when you're, in the, when you're a preacher. Someone's always wanting to tell you how you should preach or what you should do, or how long it should be or how short it should be. Someone's always wanting to. People can be very, very bold in an area that, to be honest with you, they have no business being bold at all. My hand should tremble over doing this. And to be honest with you, all of our hands should tremble. But we don't. So it's very, very easy for a pastor to start down that wicked path of trying to please the people that he probably dearly loves and not pleasing the one who has commissioned him to the work. Because I'll be honest with you, I would rather make an enemy of all of you and a friend of God than vice versa. I have done you no favor by doing anything but coming to you and telling you exactly what God has sent me to say. You can trust that. If I stand in this pulpit, I am preaching exactly what I believe God has sent me to say. And nothing else. And I would expect you to want nothing else from me. But that's how these greedy men... Feed their greed. They start off slowly in pursuit of, of the acceptance of others. Overcome by an obsession with the earthly, these false teachers find glory in the most shameful ideas and actions. Have endorsed the God of human desire and barrel down the wide path 
that leads to the inferno. That is, if there's anything, I know I wrote it, but I feel like it's the definition of where the American church heads right now. Shameful ideas and actions. Things that the Bible has expressly forbidden, we now say are okay. Endorse the God of human desire. Whatever you want to do, whatever feels right, must be right. I decided a long time ago, my flesh lies to me constantly. My flesh tells me that something is right when it is absolutely forbidden by God. But my, my flesh is screaming to me like a jet engine that it is right. And that I had to make a conscious, intellectual, theological decision to side with the word of truth and not my flesh. That my flesh lies. That my flesh, my flesh is the remnant of the child of wrath. The child of wrath that wants to be united fully with the wrath of God forever in hell. And that I would, must regard my own flesh as a liar that does not want my best, but that God who has spoken across eternity through the power of his word has done so to save us and not to condemn us. To save us from ourselves and from our own sin. That he has done this. And that all that my way does is lead to hell. The terminal manifestation of the domination of sin over their spirits is the fact that these men and women will exploit the naive church with false words. There's exploitation in this. The Greek term for the word exploit is emporiumahi, which means to travel and to traffic, to trade. Literally, the King James Version renders this beautifully by saying, make merchandise of you. Something to be bought or sold. An economy itself of false ideas. That, that, that profits not the hearer, but the speaker, right? That builds big churches. And saves no one. Paves the way to hell. And people go there feeling great about themselves and about their lives. Never knowing the truth. That's making merchandise of someone. Trade of these false teachers is lies. They sell rationalizing, pleasing untruths to desperate people. People come to us desperately sick in sin, and there's but one antidote the blood of Jesus. There's one antidote repentance and belief. That's the only one that God gives. And that people will tell them it's okay to be themselves. I'm mean, going to tell you, saint or sinner, supposed saint or sinner, it's never okay to be ourselves. God has died to save me from myself. God has, saved, has died to save me from the natural inclinations of my sin. They empower men and women, not God. They indulge dark fantasies as honorable choices for life and teach the opposite impact of Christ's gospel by making men and women slaves of their, of their most vulgar impulses. Believers in Christ, transformed by the words of truth, are no longer bound to the carnal ways of this world. We're truly citizens of heaven, turned loose to be bound to the righteousness of Christ. The words of Jesus to brand new Jewish disciples who under the duress and opposition of the Pharisees had embraced the gospel. Right there in the midst of all that. Listen, in John chapter 8, right there in the midst of Jesus saying something and the Pharisees literally insulting him, attacking him, there are Jews who are believing. 
The gospel is so powerful and so good and so clear that right there from the, from the, uh, in the most oppositional environment you can imagine, there are people coming to the cross. God is drawing men and women to himself right there. These Jewish believers, Jesus tells them. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide my word, you are truly my disciple. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. By living in God's truth, we are set free to pursue a life in Christ that is a constant battle against sin and never defended by any effort to normalize wrongdoing. As citizens of heaven, those who have been set free by abiding in the truth of the gospel as a life-giving, life-defining lifestyle, our lives stand as an affront to the world's twisted values and an example of the power of truth to alter legacy of sin and its decades-long domination. The reality is this, that we can be absolutely destroyed by sin. Destroyed by sin. Life collapsing around us. And the gospel can find us and deliver us. Words on a page bring life to the lifeless. Words in a tract bring hope to someone without any hope at all. They reach into prison cells and dungeons, hospital beds, death beds. The gospel saves. The truth always saves. It's what happens when men and women who are absolutely desperate meet the real God. It's not that he's condemned their lives and their actions. It's that he's condemned their lives and their actions and he still died for them. And he still cares for them. The cross was for them. It was for us. It was for all of us. And the gospel tells the truth of the cross. Believers are the ultimate example of what can and will be, that what God can and will do through the shed blood of Jesus to transform a life that's headed for perdition, for hell. God saves. The blood of Jesus will change your life today. Christ groaned and he died, taking your sins to the cross with him and paying the ultimate price for them. The gospel is true and it will save you. Be, by the blood of Jesus, the truth of the gospel and the washing of the Holy Spirit, the old you can mercifully die and the new you will be raised forever to live. Now, you can be able to live in a truth that changes everything. What I once thought was false and I once hoped was wrong. It's now the most beautiful message I've ever heard in my life. What once would have insulted me and condemned me. I wanted to reject and run away from screaming. I wanted to curse it. I now see the beauty of the gospel. All that happens. All that happens. Christ's high priestly prayer petitions God to sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our Savior prays to God for the complete transformation of our lives through the words of truth. The gospel takes over everything. Finding the truth is the most important pursuit of our lives. When we find it, truth changes us completely. Our Lord emphasized justice in John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, has come to us as a church so that we can be taught, so we can remember and be encouraged by the truth because the truth is all we have and it is all we will ever need. 
We can lose houses and jobs and fortunes. And if we have the truth, we are rich beyond the dreams of avarice. We're the richest of all men. No necessary truth is held back from us. As the Lord says in John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. We're not living here in darkness. We know everything that matters. We know everything about, about salvation. We know everything about, about how to live in holiness. We know everything about, about how to resist oppression. We know everything about how to raise our families. And we know everything about what's to come. There's nothing that he left out. He has included it all. Those committed to the truth are never alone, cast out. We're never forgotten. We're never unprepared. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, speaks to our hearts to encourage them today. Church, be not forlorn, but remember that the love of God is made real to us in the truth of the blood-bought gospel of Jesus Christ. We, right here, are the children of that bloody truth. We're beloved of God. We are died for. We are redeemed. We are justified. And we are now prepared to live for the glory of the one who will come for us in the clouds. Today we live that way. Today we declare that truth. And today we ask, we beg, we plead, we petition that God would break hearts today. And someone would join our ranks today. Would literally today repent of their sins and believe the gospel of Christ. Let's stand together.